Hello, everybody. This is Sarah Longwell. I am here with my good friend, Ben Wittes, and we are talking about A French Village, episodes five and six. Ben Wittes, how are you? I am excellent. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I will tell you. Uh, well, here, I got a question. Do you speak you speak any French? How's your French? Uh, my French is bad. I can pick my way through uh, written French if I have to. Um, uh, I do know enough French pronunciation to know that L-A-R-C-H-E-R is pronounced Larche, not Larcher. Um, uh, but, uh, no, I don't speak French. So that's a dig at me. It's a, it's been, so we, we, uh, I want to thank everybody who's been leaving comments, uh, on the, the podcast apps, Apple podcast in particular. Um, we've got five out of five stars, which is terrific. There's like 150 comments there. They are overwhelmingly positive with the exception of some criticism for my French pronunciations, which are bad. I understand. I can, I, for some reason, even after listening to the show, uh, even on the second round, I know that it's pronounced Larche uh, in French. I pronounce it phonetically like an American Larcher, uh, in part because I feel like a fraud when I say Larche, uh, because I don't speak French and I feel like embarrassed to like even attempt to pronounce things with a French accent. But well, I, I don't, I don't know if you pronounced, um, uh, uh, larger as large uh, to mean something was bigger, that would be fraudulent and pretentious. But the guy's name isn't Larcher; it's it's Larche, <laughs> Larche. So I'm not sure it's pretentious to call to use a pronunciation that roughly approximates what he would uh, use for himself. Just as um, if a uh, uh, somebody were to pronounce your name Longwell. Because it uh, 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 that is would feel fraudulent sounding like you know trying to sound American by saying Longwell. You would say it's not pretentious. It's not. It's just right. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I don't even mean pretentious. I just mean I just mean listening to me try to attempt bad French as opposed to just leaning into the fact that I don't speak it. But uh, point taken, everyone. I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best here um, to say the names Frenchly uh, and. Okay, so let's jump in to episodes five and six. Uh, we are at the movies this time. We right? are at the movies. So it and there's a up... lot going on at the movies. Well, everyone's at the movies. I mean, a lot of our characters have gone to see this movie. It's like clearly the big thing happening in town. Uh, but it is um, there's a, a newsreel at the beginning of the movies, like used to happen. Uh, we could probably benefit culturally today from getting some real news uh, in the front of our movies. Uh, but uh, they show a clip of uh, Paten, uh, Paten, right? I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, shaking hands with Hitler. And um, some, some uh, ne'er-do-wells in the back, uh, or some heroes, depending on your perspective, uh, boo loudly. Uh, which sets off the uh, sets off the the storyline for episode five, which is about Marchetti sort of having to track down the booer because this is a tremendous insult. Um, and so, Ben, I know you've got some something historical to tell us about the significance of this kind of handshake and what it what it means historically. Well, so so 
I, I mean, this was the beginning of the policy of collaboration. And, you know, the French went from being a, an, one of the allies, and of course, the Free French under de Gaulle remained as such throughout the war. But, uh, you know, the, the French state got knocked out of the war by the German invasion. And Marshal Pétain, who was uh, one of the heroes of the French war effort in World War One, he was the, uh, I believe, the general responsible for for the the Verdun uh, defense, and he's you know uh, the sort of hero of Verdun to the extent that you know something like Verdun can be said to have a hero, but he was a much beloved figure in France, comes to power and essentially uh, the French parliament votes to give him all the power, uh, make him effectively a a dictator. And uh, he is the person who signs the armistice with Germany that knocks um, or, or, uh, or agrees to the armistice uh, that knocks France out of the war. And uh, within a few months, and this newsreel of him shaking Hitler's hand, the French are actively uh, collaborating with the German occupation as a matter of policy. And so this is a, uh, he, he goes from over, it's really over a couple of years, I guess, being somebody who is pretty universally admired in France, except by the hard left, um, to somebody who is, you know, running a, uh, a, a a quizzling state, right, which is based in the resort town of Vichy. They basically take over a whole bunch of hotels, and the French government is being run out of this little uh, spa town. Um, and so what you're seeing in this film, uh, seeing this movie scene is the beginning of that process of people changing their views of him. Uh, and of course that it's debated in the, in the episode was the person booing the marshal, which would be a gross offense, or was he booing Hitler or maybe both? But of course, the line between the marshal and Hitler becomes a little bit hard to discern when they are uh, in a sort of fraternal way uh, uh, chumming it up. And so this is a, a scene that I think is designed to uh, highlight the sort of beginning of the change as Vichy France goes from... Uh, you know, a, 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 a state that had simply accepted the inevitable, that it had lost the war and needed an armistice, and you needed to have a government that did that to something that was more actively a Nazi client state. And that, uh, I, I think that scene is designed to, to, first of all, to highlight that that's what's happening, but secondly, to start both this episode and the sixth episode are very much about different people coming to understand that in different ways and the beginnings of what we uh, come to call the resistance. 
Yes. So, um, and, and that's highlighted at one point, uh, and you get a glimpse into Dr. Larche's politics when he, uh, they're debating what to do about the Boer, uh, he and Marchetti and, uh, Servier, who I want to talk about a little bit more, who's the deputy prefect or the sub prefect. Um, and he, you know, he says, well, Patan is, is, he doesn't say wily, but he says in some way is just being cunning, you know, that it's an act, you know, he's not, he's sort of unwilling to think of Patan as a collaborator, whereas other people at the table seem to understand that collaboration is exactly what's at hand. Yeah. And, you know, the, uh, look, I mean, Patan's name has come to be synonymous with collaboration as government in the way that, I mean, I suppose the only other person like that is Vidkut Quisling in Norway, whose name gave rise to the word Quisling. But, um, you know, the that was not the way he was understood in 1940. In 1940, he was the elder statesman, stolid, apolitical military man who uh, was much beloved. And you know, he sets about uh, establishing a government, I think, with uh, with a lot of goodwill from a lot of people. Uh, and it is not until, um, you know, it is not until uh, the behavior of that government, there are some interest, you know, there's some harbingers of this quite early on, and the show does a very good job of teasing them and showing them. But it is not until the behavior of that government becomes evident over the next uh, sort of 18 months that the degree to which Pétain is, you know, not the good guy in a difficult position becomes... uh, Clear And by the way, just um, like the word collaboration obviously has terrible connotations uh, today because, you know, to be a Nazi collaborator, like what what worse thing is there to be other than a Nazi? It, I like it was not entirely obvious that this was uh, that a certain degree of collaboration was. Uh, the wrong policy or the wrong approach. And, you know, the other country that engaged in a collaborationist uh, approach was Denmark, which did it very successfully and was actually allowed to kind of have a lot of internal uh, autonomy. Denmark managed to save almost all of its Jews uh, by smuggling them overnight one night to Sweden. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, so, and, and yet the Danish government was formally in a collaborationist posture with respect to, uh, the Nazi occupation. And so I, I don't, you know, like looking, you know, from a 1942 perspective, it is really, really obvious that the proper amount of collaboration with the Nazi occupier is zero from a fall of 1940 perspective, um, you know, what exactly was Pétain supposed to do, right? He, he, they needed the armistice. They were, they were getting destroyed. Um, and so there's a, like, we know, we know that Pétain's government was 
quite evil. And the evidence of that shows up very early in, in this and is correctly portrayed actually in episode six with respect to the scene in which the children are uh, asked to write letters to the marshal. That is a, a really good portrayal of aspects of what Petain's government was about. But it's, you know, being invaded and occupied uh, really sucks. And, uh, you know, the question of what a responsible French government would have done and looked like under the same circumstances is not an easy one. Right. Um, but we do get to learn through this a lot about our characters and where they stand. So the booing makes the Germans very angry and they do another one of these things where they, you know, grab uh, Monsieur Le Maire and Servier and Marquette and they say, you got to go find this person, track them, track him down. The, the, the German officers, you know, eating uh, cheese and, um, and bread and uh, some kind of salami and yelling at these guys to go, go find him is very upset. So they go off to do this. And then you see this great conversation between the, the kind of old grizzled chief of police. Uh, now his name, I don't think I'm going to pronounce right. Decarvin. Yeah. So that's a Dutch name and I have a, very few principles in life, but one is I don't even try with Dutch names. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> De Kervin, uh is the old grizzled guy and, and Marchetti ostensibly works for him. Um, but it becomes clear through the course of the conversation that um, De Kervin doesn't really want to go after a booer, like sees the whole thing as silly um, and, and not a good use of time and, and the kind of thing where you should let this, whoever it was, skate. And he has also given permission to the Jewish woman who was the principal of the school who was fired in the last episode, which we discussed last week, to live in a vacant apartment that the police have custody of. And he's having dinner with her at some point in this episode. So he's definitely being portrayed as the grizzled old cop who... uh actually wants to do a certain amount of internal resistance on Vichy policy from from the inside, whereas Merchetti is is much more of the 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 younger zealot who's who's uh you know somebody booed, we have to find the booer. Um and he's also much more committed to figuring out in the earlier episode, you know, who the thief was who uh, stole the ham. And he's also corrupt, you know, in the sense that he's like happy to pin the baby stealing, you know, to 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 like make the baby to facilitate the baby stealing by getting a a poor, displaced Spaniard thrown in a concentration camp. Right. And he's also willing to use, shall we call them enhanced interrogation techniques. Um, you know, he says sort of outright at one point, uh, as 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 DeCurvin sort of arguing that you cannot find someone who booed, that that's not a thing you can do. Marchetti is saying, of course you can, you just use a little intimidation, which he proceeds to do. Um, and so we do see through the episode 
um, a couple of big things come to light as a result of Marchetti's investigation. Uh, so at the movies, uh, we have, and this happens like, I think even before the opening credits, uh, we see uh, Marie uh, and uh, Schwartz, uh, Schwartz spots Marie at the movies and they go into a closet or a coat room or something and make out where they are caught by Sarah, the maid, the Schwartz's maid. Um, and, uh, you know, the, she, well, Schwartz is, is worried about the fact that he has been caught, uh, by their, by his maid kissing another woman. Sarah is freaked out that she has been caught at the movies on a night when she is supposed to be working. I have a little bit of a plot issue with this because I do not understand how Sarah missed it, that her bosses were going to the movies. Um, and when she was supposed to be at home, but fine, they all find themselves there. Janine is sitting in the theater, Schwartz's wife watching, um, you know, the, the, the newsreel at the beginning of the movie. And so it's all very, uh, mixed up in this, in this household, but. And Sarah is there with the booer. With the booer, which we find out, um, as everybody is sort of lying to cover their tracks um, and Janine sort of suspects that Schwartz and Sarah are having an affair. Turns out uh, Sarah is dating um, this guy Bellini. And we've seen Bellini before because he kind of, he was the guy with dysentery in the church who was the son of the, the chamber of commerce head. Uh, so he is a, a fancy lad uh, with connections and he was flirting at the time with um our teacher, Julianne, uh, Lucienne, thank you. Look at you connect, correcting me on the names, um, as I try to get through all the characters. Um, and so, uh, so this guy, uh, I guess likes pretty young ladies and, uh, he's in Sarah's bed. Schwartz, you know, confronts them to find out, you know, were you the one who booed? Turned out, yes, he's the one who booed. Uh, but as a result of this, Sarah gets dragged into Marchetti's office. And Sarah, we learn, is really afraid of two things. One is that one is her her boss, not Schwartz, but Schwartz's wife, uh, because she was at the movies when she should be working. And number two is that she is also Jewish, um, and uh, she is afraid of being put on some list. That's right. So they have now. There's this like mandatory reporting policy. Um, and so there's there's this very light thread through the episodes um, where Sarah is kind of trying to ask the Schwartzes for advice about, do I report myself? And so this must have been a thing that the Jews were really trying to figure out at the time. Um, you know, do I put myself voluntarily on this list or do I roll the dice on not being on the list? Yeah. So here here this is a um, and we're skating the limits of my knowledge here of uh, Vichy policy. Um, but it's useful to think of Vichy policy with respect to Jews in two distinct phases. The first is 1940 to 42, where they were not really under significant pressure from the Germans. The the policies that they enacted were actually organic Vichy anti-Semitism. The, the, um, uh, and it had basically a number of dimensions. The first is the one we saw in the last episodes where they, you know, removed Jews from civil service jobs, teachers, journalists, 
the second is that they rounded up and put in concentration camps. These were French concentration camps, not Nazi concentration camps, and they actually significantly predated the war. A lot of what they called foreigners and foreigners included a lot of Jews who were refugees from Germany and other countries that uh, um, uh, Germans had occupied. There had been a significant influx from Czechoslovakia, from, you know, everywhere Germans went, Jews left. And, um, and a lot of them came to Paris in particular. So a bunch of these people were rounded up and there were a bunch of Jews put in concentration camps uh, or internment camps. Um, and then there were French Jews who were, with a lot of harassment, if they weren't in the civil service, largely left alone, uh, French citizen Jews, for the first two years. Um, the second two years is really where you start seeing large numbers of people, you know, forcibly removed to be killed in, concentra- in, in death camps in, in, in Poland and elsewhere. And so think of this as the, you know, the early stage, they're basically making lists, they're figuring out who's around. The French state is very unitary, which you see in the um, uh, the deputy prefect basically ordering the mayor around. This is a, you know, this is not a federal state, right? It's a unitary state where everything reports up the chain of command and they are, you know, trying to, they're figuring out where all the Jews are. Um, and so you have both Sarah doesn't know whether to declare herself and also um, the former principal, whose name I'm forgetting, you know, is trying to think about whether to declare herself. And this is, you know, quite, quite accurate. Mrs. Morhange, yes. Morhange, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's another little sort of interesting tidbit where that there's a there's an old guy they bring in marchetti brings in at the beginning of the investigation to figure out you know who the boor was and he says you know did you recognize anybody in the theater this guy was at the movie and he you know ends up tagging sarah reluctantly very reluctantly and and at some point says i don't want to get sarah in trouble she's, she's very, very nice, nice for, for a Jew. Jew, yeah yeah um which is just more of this sort of cultural way in which people and you can see it with the Schwartzes too with Sarah where um they they clearly don't aren't thinking that hard about having a Jewish maid they don't think that it's uh bad but you can sort of see the beginnings of Janine starting to harden uh towards Sarah and like uh, some of that is because of suspicion about the affair but she kind of uses like she doesn't care about the Jews like she doesn't doesn't care if you go on the list or not you know she's not interested in helping Sarah navigate this in a way that Mr. Schwartz uh, might be. Um, And then Sarah actually does, she drops the dime on Mr. Schwartz, though, to Mrs. Schwartz, uh, who takes it drunkenly. Yes, uh, there is quite a temper tantrum about that. Um, And she also um, uh, informs her father who is apparently the actual landowner that they are super, that they are kind of the custodians of his land. And she tries to get uh, Marie and her ne'er-do-well husband evicted from, from the land on which they are uh, uh, sort of rental, you know, rental peasants. 
That's right. Um, and they, uh, Schwartz, Schwartz is trying to keep Marie and her husband Lorraine from getting kicked off the land, which he does by placating, uh, Janine in a gross sex scene, um, that, uh, that, that I just, uh, I, I, I can't help but just say that the, the way that Janine and Mr. Schwartz kiss is very gross. <laughs> uh, that's just me. I don't I'm, know. I'm not, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> Yeah. Not going to so, de- defend the kiss. Yeah. Uh, here's, is so here is, um, so let's, let's switch gears actually to one of the, the other like really, um, great things happening in this episode, uh, which is that we meet Suzanne for the first time, um, in this great scene where, uh, can I just say one of the yeah. most simply appealing characters we have met yet? 100%. Other, like she, she doesn't seem to be motivated by anything other than uh, wanting to sock it to Nazis. She's uh, a socialist, which was the only cool thing to be politically then, but not a communist. Um, like she's got, which means there are certain political values that are aligning in the right place. Um, she is um, uh, got a spirit of adventure. Um, and I love her political slogan. It's not about, you know, workers of the world or what it's just get the krauts out. Um, out with the krauts. Know, yeah, it's, uh, uh, no, she's, she's my fave so far. Uh, yeah, so it's great to see Suzanne show up. Um, I was happy to see her. She begins with a heroic, she bails out Marcel, who's running from the police. He's got flyers in his bag, which is uh, I, I do think I want to talk about the flyers as this sort of the most daring attempt at political propaganda is this distribution of flyers with with some kind of um, propaganda from one side or another. But he's got so he's got these in his bag. Someone sees him, identifies him, you know, as he's dropping off his son at school. He's on the run. Uh, he runs into her. She takes the the flyers out of his bag, puts them in hers and, and goes away. So when the police catch up to him. He's got nothing on him, nothing incriminating. Um, and then you see this great conversation with them uh, where, you know, she's she's sort of convincing him that uh, that that they should do something for November 11th, which is very significant, which we'll talk about in a second after I just hit the plot points. Um, but but one of the things about um, Marcel meeting Suzanne, who, you know, they have sort of this they're sort of kindred spirits and their political ambitions. And yet. You find out that uh, Marcel's communist, you know, buddies in the party, the head of the party that he keeps having to go report to, do not like the idea one bit of him hanging out with this socialist. And uh, I bet you know a little something about the internal rifts between the communists and the socialists at the time. Yeah, so this is a huge division, uh, both in Germany, where it played a huge role in bringing Hitler to power, actually, uh, seven or eight years earlier. Uh, And in, you know, basically all over Europe, um, uh, the communists and the socialists were bitter enemies. The socialists were, uh, think of them like left Democrats. They're a, a solidly democratic, small d democratic power, uh, they eventually come to power in many countries. They were the ruling party in Germany for, you know, the social German Social Democratic Party. They have they were they're the Labour Party in Britain, right? So these are 
Uh, we usually don't call them socialists anymore, um, but these are the air, the, 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 the ancestors of modern sort of social democratic parties. Um, they, the socialists in France had been briefly the, uh, a governing part of a governing coalition, um, the called the Popular Front from, I think, 34 to 36, um, under Leon Blum, the famously Jewish head of the Socialist Party, who was briefly prime minister. Um, and, uh, they were a, you know, respectable left party in the way that, you know, every European country has a, you know, a center right and a center left party. They were the, the sort of leftmost respectable party. They were in Germany, the only political party that predated Hitler that was allowed to reform after the war. Um, the, all the others had compromised with, the Nazis and the Allied governments did not allow them to reform, but the Social Democrats were allowed to reform. And in France, of course, they eventually elected President Mitterrand, um, who was the great sort of socialist president of France after the Gaullist era. So, um, you know, this is a party that is, you know, a, a combination of uh very impactful, meaningfully impactful, but also very solidly democratic in orientation. The communists are revolutionaries. And um, they are um, a anti-democratic party, an anti-liberal party. Uh, and in this period of time, as later, they answered directly to Moscow. Um, and so the, the great division that you're seeing here is the socialist is ready to start resistance. And granted, resistance isn't blowing things up, right? Resistance is leafleting um, and is framing the resistance in patriotic terms, wants to do it on November 11th, which is, of course, we think of November 11th as Veterans Day. But back then it is Armistice Day. It's the day the Germans surrendered in World War One. So November 11th is this patriotic occasion because they defeat the Germans. But and of course, the Germans don't want them to celebrate November 11th because it's a bad holiday for them. And so there's the, the part of the the thing overhanging this episode is the, the, the Germans wanting to make sure there are no November 11th celebrations. And so this is sort of a uh, a, a, not just a soft act of resistance, a real act of resistance. Oh, very much so. And so, but the party, the, 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 not, uh, the, the communists don't want to celebrate November 11th for two reasons that are one expressed in the, in the show and the other not. The, exp the, the one that's expressed is we don't do patriotism, you know, which is to say we're the International Workers Party. We, we don't believe in this nation state garbage. Um, and of course, they actually represent the interests of, of Moscow. So they're, they're anti, they're against any displays or expressions of French patriotism. The second reason, which is expressed in the previous episode, but not in this one, is we don't have a problem with the Nazis. And the reason for that, of course, is that at the time, the Soviet uh, uh, Nazi pact is still in effect. The Soviets have not yet been invaded themselves. And the, the, the Communist Party will turn on a dime 
the moment that the, the Nazis invade uh, the Soviet Union a few months from now. Uh, yes. Um, so this is, again, can I just say that, that there is, um, there is very little that we've seen so far to recommend these communists with the exception <laughs> of Marcel himself, who seems like, um, you know, I think seems like a, 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 a good guy, if not, um, if not sort of stern, um, or like, or he, he just, he has that, that ideological fervor to the point of it being a little bit scary and to the point where it really, I think, you know, even cause, you know, they, he's lost his, his wife dies, um, in, in one of the, the two episodes preceding it. I can't remember which one. His got this son who is, I think, probably about six or seven years old. Um, and, and his, his commitment to the party sort of overshadows the role that he needs to play as a father, um, despite the fact that he clearly very much loves his son. Um, but I, but I still, I still, there's a lot to recommend Marcel, I think, as, as you're watching him, um, Whereas well, every time he talks to these these communist party, I'm like, you guys are terrible. Uh, boy, do I not like you. Uh, and they're always doing things like, you must write a self-assessment, Marcel, because you've been having these bad conversations with Suzanne, who's probably a, a traitor and a police officer looking to entrap you or something. Um, but Marcel defies them, uh, which we see in sort of the next episode, the, the episode that um, episode uh, six. Uh, where he and Suzanne go on to put this plan into action, and we should just move into move into that because there's, um, this is this is the November 11th day, right? So uh, just just one one note on, you know, the Communist Party in this period, um, it, you know, it is a totalitarian party itself, and rem- we are, we are four years, five years from the end of what would re- be remembered as the great Holocaust of the 20th century, if not for the Holocaust, which is Stalin starving the Ukrainian, pe- you know, 8 million Ukrainian peasants or something. Um, you know, these this is an exceptionally murderous bunch of people. Now, the it is true that communism, because of its idealism, and genuinely beautiful visions always attracted people who were more attractive personally than the politics of the party. And that's, I think, what you're reflecting. But, you know, these were, this was a horrible, horrible group of people. And, uh, you know, it's one of the great things about, you know, successes of the 20th century that they, in, in European politics, that they never managed to take power in France. And that was a, you know, that was a possibility for a while. Um, well, let's, so let's talk about um, the the episode six, because I think what's interesting, just keeping on this theme with the communists about what Marcel does is that Marcel joins with Suzanne to, you know, put these leaflets into the newspapers. Now she is the head of the post office. She's the postmistress in the town. Um, or maybe she, I don't know if she's the head, but she's, 
got a decent position where she's in charge of dropping off the newspapers. So she has access to them and they are going to, you know, insert a little flyer that says out with the crowds into all of the newspapers. But this is, this is a very high stakes uh, operation, but in doing it, he is defying both his own, the communist leaders who have now told him he better not do anything. And he's also defying the Germans all in one foul swoop. Um, and, and importantly, he's also defying the Vichy regime. So during this period of time, and actually in the two years before Pétain comes to power, the communists are, are basically declared an illegal organization. And they, uh, the regime starts rounding up large numbers of them. So there's a few references here to internment camps and stuff. And this is partly about foreigners, but it's partly also about communists. And so, you know, his, the risk that he's facing is being shunted off to one of these camps, which at the end of the episode, it's pretty clear that he is or is going to be. Um, And he's, um, yes, and he's also defied his own party hierarchy by allying with and working with a socialist on a patriotic display. Um, And so I think he's, you know, he's got big problems coming for him in the, in the episodes ahead, um, both with his own team and with the, and, and with the away team. And uh, just to to keep on the, the plot line, this particular one of putting it in the newspaper. So they, so they do this, they pull this off. This attempt is not without its complications. Uh, they have to go to the sawmill to get string because they're the papers are packed too tight. So they're going to have to cut the string on the papers. They can't just insert the leaflets, uh, which means they're going to have to retie them afterwards. Um, she uh, is going to have to drop them. She needs a cover story, which she creates about how she's going to go uh, to her father's grave and pray. But there's another person who who works at the office that she needs to make sure she misses. And that woman, uh, you know, because of her rheumatism, doesn't usually get there till 930. So they are staking a lot of like they're they're making uh, pitting big hopes on um, just the idea that, like, hopefully this person doesn't show up uh, like she normally doesn't. Um, to me, I listened to their plan and thought, I don't know, this doesn't sound foolproof for the level of consequence uh, you guys could 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 end up dealing with as a result of this. Well, and the grizzled old cop, uh, uh, de, Ker- de Kirshner or whatever his name is, says they're total amateurs. Um, and he says it in sympathy, like he wants to... You know, he wants to figure out how not to catch them, but he's, um, you know, they're they're pretty bumbling. Um, But this is where Marcel's appealing side, I think, comes out because he um, protects her uh, pretty admirably. And, you know, when they're when they're both being interrogated together and they can't deny having some association, he takes the rap completely on himself and uh, makes it seem like they were having an affair um, uh, and therefore her involvement was just on the romantic side and had nothing to do with uh, the distribution of the flyers. And so as the episode ends, 
he gets shunted off to a concentration camp. His kid goes to live with the mayor and she walks. Yeah. Although, I mean, okay. So just a couple things just to back up on this plot point here. So, so she, she gets arrested, you know, Marchetti finds the flyer. Doesn't take them long to figure out, like they go right to the post office. Uh, the woman who has rheumatism has showed up early, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things, having watched these two episodes together, you're seeing a lot of Marchetti questioning people. Suzanne, top-notch under pressure of questioning. Sarah folded, as did the old guy who died, like Sarah. You see a lot tent. of people, Like a cheap tent, Sarah. Sarah just couldn't. I mean, she named everybody. Uh Whereas um, Suzanne, like, either looks like she's been interrogated before or just is unflappable. Um, so she she renders her story. She's quick on her feet. Uh, big, big. I, I remember watching this for the first time and being like, I'm going to love this character. Um, but then, of course, Marcel, similarly, yes, when he gets hauled in and then put down next to her, uh, makes it look like he's been betraying her, using her through an affair to get access to the post office. Very shrewd, smart. And he does, I think he's getting arrested. Like we see him, we see him run. He goes and picks up his son uh, to hug him, say goodbye to him, um, make sure that his son doesn't tell anybody that he saw Suzanne because the son, Gustav, did see Suzanne. She had come over to the house um, the evening before. And so he's reminding Marcel, Marcel is reminding Gustav, you did not see this woman. Um, and that is, again, a lot to pin on a seven-year-old's judgment. Um, but he, uh, he, he sets him up with his brother, uh, Daniel, uh, the doctor, Larche. Uh, and it's clear another, there's another glimpse here into their relationship, which is clearly fraught, these brothers. Um, but, but the big thing to me, was just watching Marcel who clearly loves his son and clearly, you know, being a father to the son matters to him. But at the same time, the fact that he is a single parent to a son is in no way a deterrent for him doing the things that he thinks is right. Um, so what do you think, Ben Wittes? Do you think that Marcel is a bad dad or a great patriot or both? Well, look, I think the answer has to be both, that one of the things in this situation, uh, you know, the people who make compromises to protect their families, we look at them back and they and would and say, hey, they're really complicit. Um, and, you know, complicity has a way of you give it an inch and it takes 100 miles. And then you see the people. And by the way, Suzanne has two kids too. Um, and her husband is away in a POW camp. And so she's after, you don't see the family dynamics on her side yet, but there are reciprocal risks that she's taking. You see the people who look at it and say, actually resistance is what morality requires. And the show is unstinting about showing that, hey, there are moral consequences for that too. And one of them is that your six-year-old or seven-year-old kid who just lost his mother 
is going to be scooped out of school in the middle of the day in an emergency situation and dropped off with his uncle, whom he doesn't actually know very well. And and the last scene you see, little Gustav, he's gone from this living in this hovel with his father to eating soup at a very proper table with the cop who arrested his dad because the cop lives with Marchetti, lives with uh, uh, the Larches. And so it's all very incestuous and strange. And yes, it is the moral consequence of being the communist who defies party discipline to team up with the socialists to do early resistance, which is exactly what we would consider heroic and right and morally proper. And yeah, now the kid is kind of on his own in an isolated uh, environment in a very fancy house with the arresting officer. So yeah, no, no course you take is without moral pain. Yeah. So, and this isn't the only plot point that involves Gustav. Uh, so Gustav is actually sort of the, he's the through line of this episode because he has to write an essay for school. You referenced this earlier, uh, where he has to, you know, write something to the marshal, you know, so you can see kids doing this today, like writing letters to the president to say whatever. Uh, and Gustav writes a very cute letter that says something to the effect of, um, there are Germans and German soldiers in France and, uh, French soldiers over in Germany and wouldn't everything be a heck of a lot better if the Germans were in Germany and the French were in France? And isn't that just the best? Uh, but uh, he, unbeknownst to him, writes it on the back of one of his father's Out With The Crowds flyers. Um, and it sets up an opportunity for us to meet uh, a couple new characters that end up being very important. So one is the new principal, Mr. Barriott. Uh, and the other one is a German soldier named Kurt. Um, and they are both, Kurt is the German soldier presiding over the reading. The students are reading it in front of what I guess would be like the superintendent, uh, who's very hot on collaboration, uh, and is incidentally also the person who berated, uh, Lucienne, uh, in some early episodes. Um, and so the kids have to get up in class and, and read these letters. And when, Gustav does that, Kurt immediately, and Lucienne, you see them both kind of see it at the same time. It's nice and subtle. Uh, but they see that what's written on the back of the flyer. And Kurt intervenes by going and grabbing it out of his hand and saying, that is a terrible thing to say. He acts like he's mad at him and like he's imposing discipline. And he takes the, the, the little letter out of Marcel, uh, out of Gustav's hands and throws it in the fire. Um, and what we learn from that is that, oh, Kurt, the German soldier, uh, you know, went out of his way here to protect this little kid. Um, and did you, I thought that was a, I thought that was an interesting scene. Yeah. So there are so many interesting things about the scene. First of all, it is, uh, the first indication that we get that I think there may be something between, uh, or may come to be something between Kurt and Lucien. She, goes out of her way to thank him later. It's all done very subtly. Um, but she and he both noticed what was on the back of this thing and the superintendent and the principal did not. Um, 
Secondly, uh, the politics of it are super interesting. So this is, an, again, a feature of the early Vichy regime. Um, they were really interested in, and Pétain was really interested in this idea of national revolution, national, you know, what we might call nationalist revolution. It wasn't exactly fascism, but it was kind of similar to, it was modeled on the Salazar regime in Portugal, sort of Francoist uh, authoritarianism, um, and they were very interested. There's a reference to it by, I think, the, the, super, the school superintendent character who says, you know, we, we've been too lax. We've tolerated too much. We need a regime that's going to purify us of, of, of these bad ideas, by which he means racial minorities, foreigners, and communists, which were, you know, you also see... Um, uh, and so they are in this period in which they're trying to kind of rejuvenate French sort of Catholic, uh, authoritarian, um, uh, kind of create a kind of very Catholic authoritarian regime. And, um, and this is, you know, the idea of veneration of the marshal is kind of part of this. He's the both the person behind it, but he's also there definitely trying to create a cult of personality around it. So the politics of that, it's a kind of window into this sort of national revolution part of the early uh, Pétain uh, regime. But then I also think the other interesting thing about it is the, you know, portrayal of the German soldier who doesn't want to create a problem for a, a little kid um, and, you know, I think the show is very good at these frequent reminders that, hey, they're, you know, some of them are in Nazi uniforms, but they're just people. And, you know, some of them, and you see that also in the guard who guards the bridge, who has a relationship with, with, uh, with Schwartz that's friendly and, um, and, I, so I think it's a super complicated scene um, and the whole run up to it is leading you to believe that the fact that Gustave does his essay, his letter on this is going to be the thing that brings down his father. And of course, it's a kind of bait and switch because that's not what happens and his father takes the rap anyway. So I thought it was one of the best scenes in the, in, in the, um, in the show so far, just in terms of the amount of dramatic tension and the amount that's going on in it. The amount of tension. And it's funny because this is, this is where I, I've always kind of loved the straightforwardness of this show in where if this was an American show, there'd be a lot of music telling you what to think about it. The, the, the noticing of, of it being written on the back of the paper would be much more pronounced, but like everything that happens in the scene is super subtle, including, including, I would say we meet Barriott for the first time, the new principal. And he kind of is kind of cheery about this whole, you know, letter reading. He's annoyed that it looks like some of the kids haven't shown up because potentially their parents don't want their kids reading these letters to the marshal. And so there's absences in the class. Um, and so you're not sure. And he even mentioned something sort of cheerfully about collaboration. Um, like, ah, oh, well, we're all supposed to be collaborating now. Um, isn't that the word? 
And so you're, you're, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting introduction to him. Um, and he's a, he's, I'll just say this. It's not a spoiler. He's a very, he's an essential character. Um, and so, uh, it's an, it's an interesting way to meet him, but a great, a great scene. Um, I'll tell you another scene that I really liked that only modestly advances the plot, but <laughs> there's, there's a soup kitchen, right? So there's obviously, again, going back, there's a lot of scarcity, um, that sort of pervades everything that's happening. Um, and at one point you see, um, you see that Schwartz goes over to see Marie and Lorraine and Lorraine weirdly has uh, Schwartz help him butcher a pig, uh, which Schwartz is now going to help sell on the black market because he'll get more money for it because, um, and, and there was an early scene actually in the previous episode where you learn about requisition. The fact that like people come to your house and they're like, what are you going to give us for poor people? Um, and so this sort of the poverty that is engulfing the region kind of sits over the whole thing like a fog. But in this, there's a, a soup. They're, they're, they're feeding, um, I guess, needy people. Um, and so the mayor has to go and his wife and, um, and Servier is there. And I just want to have a quick conversation about Servier, uh, also ultimately a very, uh, main character who is kind of the pencil pusher, right? The local, the sub prefect, meaning I don't really know where he would fall in like a government, but he's some kind of, local government guy who is there to make sure that people are are abiding by the new rules and um you know he uh he has to give a speech like he gives like a lecture to the people before they get to eat their soup um which is kind of a was just kind of a i thought a, a nice way of of exp of showing how um how the new bureaucracy was settling in yeah so uh there's a, a few interesting things about that moment. Um, he, so this is on November 11th, right. but it is not a November 11th obser uh, observance of November 11th. It just happens to be. And he uh, refers to Pétain, you know, as the hero or the conqueror of Verdun, which is a, subtly anti-German way to talk about him. And Larche at the end, you know, congratulates him. That was, you know, kind of forward leaning of you to, to refer to Pétain that way. Um, and, you know, the, I thought that was interesting because they're still, they're talking about collaboration, but they're also thinking about it in the mode of kind of resistance, right? They're still thinking about Pétain as a resist the Germans figure rather than a uh, lackey of the Germans. And uh, so I think it's, again, it's one of these portrayals of the, the very slow, subtle shift in the way people understand what the Vichy regime is. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's a, there's a great conversation um, between Marchetti Larche and Servier in the previous episode, um, they're at, they're at a lunch and they're just, just trying to decide whether to arrest Bellini, the son of the head of the Chamber of Commerce. And there's this interesting exchange between Servier and Marchetti where Marchetti very much wants to arrest him, uh, because you have to have order. And this is, this is a defining thing about Marchetti, his sort of obsession with the law and order, um, especially as he gets to meet it out. Whereas Servier is much more a person of compromises where he says, look, order, 
what is more what is what what more is order about if not uh that there is a high society that you treat differently than a lower society where they have different rules um and it's funny because uh Servier in wanting to kind of let the guy skate is is the right position in the sense that what the guy did was just boo and so it doesn't seem like worth arresting him over but Marchetti's position that purist position is more like egalitarian in some way. Except except that Marchetti is a total hypocrite about it because what he wants to do is arrest the guy and then let him off (laughs) um, because for the exact same reasons that Servier wants not to arrest him. Um, So he wants to do, what he wants to do is the thing that maximizes his own power, which is show the guy he can arrest him and then let him off because he's a high society guy. Um, And use it in the next episode to go after Suzanne, um, you know, hey, we have to, you know, we have to treat her the same way we treated, um, you know, the Bellini character. So I, I, I think, I think Marchetti is just corrupt. You know, he's got this, um, um, he's, you know, confronted with a baby stealing host he is happy to use their transgression as leverage against them by throwing a Spaniard in a concentration camp. Um, you know, confronted by the high society guy uh, who boos, he he wants the outcome in which he gets to exercise the maximum coercive power. Um, he's like his... His um, his fanaticism is quite tempered by self-interest. Yeah, he's not ideological the way Marcel is. Uh, he is, yeah, he's just, he's looking around at the new world order and thinking, how do I climb atop this? And you can see his, him sort of throwing that bone to Servier, right? Acting like he's giving Servier what he wants. Uh, when Daniel hears about it, he kind of puts his arm on his shoulder and says, you know, you're going to go far, son, you know, you're going to go far, young man, uh, because because Marchetti is is demonstrating a kind of shrewd way of navigating these political situations, um, which is funny uh, because we see de Carvin, uh in the previous episode looks at Marchetti and says, you're losing your soul, son, uh, when he wants to, you know, bring the booer in. And it's interesting, you know, that one of the ways that the morality of the show sort of sets up the spectrum of its characters is in how they react to one another. And so you can see from the way De Cavern uh, reacts to Marchetti that he thinks that people who are operating the way Marchetti is. And I, I will just say, I'm just going to throw in one of the, the things that always struck me uh, about sort of when you connect it to our current politics you know, I look at Marchetti as somebody who just is is surveying the landscape and saying, how do I get ahead in this? And there were plenty of people in the Trump years who had no interest in making a moral judgment in one way or the other about Trump. They just wanted to say, oh, well, this is the world now. How do I how do I get ahead in this world? Um, and that's sort of who Marchetti is. And, and it's interesting. Then you take somebody like Daniel and his reaction of you're going to go far, son, because he's sort of shrewd in navigating these these issues and knows who to suck up to at the right time. It's sort of an instance of Daniel's kind of um, neutrality 
and 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 seeing those kinds of compromises as a necessary way that one moves to the world. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap, one question to the listeners who may uh, know something about this question that I do not. There are a number of characters who show up uh, in this show with evidently foreign names. So Marchetti seems to have an Italian name, as does Bellini. And the uh, grizzled older cop has what looks to me like a Dutch name. Um, and so to people who know something, and maybe it's maybe De Caverne is not a Dutch name, um, uh, but to people who... Um, uh, who know something linguistically about the um, uh, about this region of France and also this period uh, who may be able to shed some light on that tweet at us about it. Like are, are the directors here and the writers saying something um, about this village with the names of the characters, particularly the last names uh, you know, you definitely see some of that going on with some of the more Jewish names. I still think we're going to learn something about Schwartz, uh, uh, the sawmill owner uh, who uh, is kind of greedy. I think we're still going to learn something uh, that's not going to flatter the screenwriters uh, about that character. Um, but um, uh, uh, I would be interested to know whether there's uh, a little bit of a little bit of portrayal and signaling going on with some of the uh, uh, other names. Interesting question. Uh, okay. Well, uh, tweet at us, send us emails, uh, go leave a, a review on uh, iTunes. All of that is great. Um, thanks to all of you for listening and we will see you next Friday after we've watched episodes seven and eight. Edith, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement Comme t'aimes tous les amants Et puis un jour tu m'as quitté Depuis je suis